and then they're like, yeah, you can't just do this. Guys. We honor this man as he lived. <laughs> we will bring him back to life. Guys, I'm going to fill this out there. At my funeral, you better inject me with wine. <laughs> Not a nice, but wine. A nice rosé. A nice rosé, please. <laughs> and welcome to the Down Front Podcast. How's it going, guys? We are back. Thank you. I'm super excited. We're getting right back into it. How we love to review movies. Our last one was a Game of Thrones that we had a great time for. For now, we're actually going back and talking about a huge summer blockbuster that is literally everywhere that I can necessarily see. All online. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's super amped about it. Just super jazzed. This is Dunkirk by Christopher Nolan's latest work. Featuring a bunch of people we'll talk about later. Because the, the cast is pretty big. But before we get into that, before we talk about a review, I want to introduce some of my best friends ever. Uh, of course, the sexiest <laughs> voice alive to this day, we have Mr. Brylan. How's it going, Brylan? How's it going? Thank you, know, you for having me again. Of course. I, I, again, uh, you, are, you are a staple, my friend. You are, as always. Yes. As always. Uh, I'm interested to see what... Out of the bottle, Violet. Out of, <laughs> you're drinking out of the bottle. We're not even no, five minutes in. Here <laughs> My goodness. I Okay. Uh, is that your reserve? Like you put out the glass and just went straight to the bottle? Yeah, this is like my angel's chair. I just stood it to the side. Uh, Rylan, what are you drinking? What are you watching? <laughs> I'm drinking a lovely Apothic blend called Apothic Crush. Nice. And it is another red blend that they're doing. It's supposed to be smoother than the Apothic Red. Uh, it's definitely much lighter in flavor, uh, but it still has that nice balance of uh, fruits and notes of just goodness that you expect from a pothic. So, hashtag, sip to that. Nice, I will. What you been watching? Uh, so I've been watching some funny things recently. So. Uh, some of y'all may be more may be familiar with the Lonely Island, which is Andy Samberg's like comedy group that uh, did a lot of cool things like the digital shorts on SNL. So I watched uh, their movie Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping, Ooh. and it is a hilarious movie. Yes, what like kind of like what you expect from their albums, or if you took one of their albums and made a documentary around it, this is probably what you get with Pop Star. And uh, Andy Samberg plays this character, Connor, for real. That uh, it's just all about his, his, the madness that he gets into when he becomes successful and how he deals with that. So I definitely recommend watching that. Uh, it has one of the most uncomfortable but hilarious dick jokes as well. Uh, so that's definitely something to look out for in that movie. Um, also watched uh, an HBO uh, sports mockumentary called Tour de Pharmacy. So Andy Samberg uh, did a uh, documentary a couple years ago called Seven Days in Hell, which was about the longest match point in Wimbledon history. It also starred Kit Harrington. They both played tennis players. I just started doing some crazy shit over seven days of trying to finish a game. Uh, and Tour de Pharmacy takes that same type of uh, mockumentary style and makes it around the Tour de France. And it's like the 1982 Tour de France where they found that Everybody was on some type of illegal drugs and stuff. Mm. And it is fantastic. Uh, Andy Samberg plays a cyclist from Nigeria. And the reasons why he's from Nigeria is amazing. 
Um, John Cena's in it, who is fucking hilarious as this Austrian cyclist that denies that he's on drugs. But if you ever seen John Cena, he's jacked. <laughs> John Cena is always a surprising delight uh, in any comedy role he's in. Yeah. He always takes you by surprise. Yeah. I feel like he's trying to transition and be like The Rock right now. Like he's trying to get that Rock money right now. He who just came up with I mean, the movie today. That's a smart path. The yeah. Rock's gonna be our next president. So. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I mean, twenty twenty. Uh, no, I think I think John Cena is. You're right. Rock he is really trying to. He is trying to like transcend that, but. Uh, as much as you hate the wrestling character, I actually really respect the dude. Uh, just for doing more Make-A-Wishes than any other person on the planet. Um, which, one, why are that many people trying to meet John Cena? But two, can, kudos for him for doing it. Like, he, he really rises to the occasion. Yeah, I mean, once again, at my funeral, John Cena, and then injected me with wine. So just guys, just keep, keep that in mind, all right? That's going to circle back. I want Booker T to give me the spin-a-rooney. Just the whole funeral. <laughs> the whole thing. The spin-a-rooney after spin-a-rooney. I want, a man, I want mankind to shove a sock in my corpse's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why that? Out of all the things that's that you could have That's getting cut. That's just getting cut. I just, I want mankind to. Brian, uh, <laughs> what else have you been watching? Um, yeah, but uh, Tour de Pharmacy, uh, it also stars uh, Orlando Bloom, who is unrecognizable, but hilarious as well. And they have, uh, what's really cool about it is. It's not just making fun of uh, doping and sports, but it's also educational. They have this whole like animated series that actually educates you on uh, blood bagging, where someone puts an extra pint of blood into their body and what it does to them, which is hilarious, but also serves as like, hey, we know what we're actually talking about. So it's good to see that as well. So I, I definitely recommend both of those and. If you haven't seen Seven Days in Hell, definitely watch it too. And that's all on HBO that people can find. That's all on HBO. Nice. And HBO Now, HBO Go, feel free. Um, I definitely saw that. And I think Popstar, I missed it while it was in theaters, but I was really excited. I just like Andy Samberg's work. I don't think there was one thing I didn't like that he came out with. Um, So I think that'd be pretty cool to kind of check out. I think that's definitely on my list too, I do. Cool. Well, uh, below him I have the Shredder. This man doesn't need an introduction. Wait, you just introduced me. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, how's it going, man? Not too bad. Not too bad at all. Uh, I'm trying a, a variation on one of my like summer standbys, Harpoon. I usually love the UFO whites. Uh, this is a House Golden. It's all right. Probably just wish I got the UFO standard. But <laughs> I, I, you, I figured I'd try you're something You're super bummed. You're like, ah, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no ringing endorsement on this one. But it's beer, so I can't really hate it. Um, I think the only thing that I've been watching lately, uh, because I've been a little bit busy, um, has been Game of Thrones. You guys really knocked it out of the park last week with the opening. I think on this newest episode, eh, I wish there was more that happened. There was pirates. That was cool. But I don't know. You got 13 episodes left, 12, 11 episodes left. Do more, please do more. Um, 
I would have to say the only thing that I'm seeing in the foreseeable future is a Queen tomorrow night. Apparently, they're still touring. A friend hit me up today and was like, do you want to see Queen? They're coming to town tomorrow. And I said, yes. I have no... Uh, honestly, I'm going in like Warren. I have no idea who's singing for them. It might be Freddie Mercury's hologram. It might be Adam Lambert. That's who last was singing for them. Uh, I, so. I have no idea. Uh, but I'm excited. Because I... Uh, you may... You, you may It may be Freddie Mercury himself. Who knows? <laughs> Oh, that's true. I mean, well, I saw the I saw the Doors when they got back together after um, the Doors movie came out, and of course, Jim um, Jim Morrison's dead, so they got um, Ian Asbury from the Cult to be their front man, and I thought that was amazing. I I saw that first tour back for Queen when they had uh, Paul Rogers. And honestly, that was a pretty sick show. Like, Paul Rogers is no, obviously, is no Freddie Mercury. Like, not even close. But it was really just, like, a great old band's night where, like, they played a bunch of Queen songs and they played a bunch of, like, bad company songs. And it was just like, all right, cool. Like, I'm glad I wore my denim jacket to this, you know? (laughs) That's awesome. Cool. Well, as always, thanks so much, uh, Mike, for hanging out with us as well. I'm glad. I, I'm so super bummed that we missed you last time, but I know that you were super, super tired from playing all your shows. We'll definitely talk about your band and your work and everything you have coming up soon, so I appreciate it, man. Yeah, it's mediocre. The band, that is. The podcast is great. Oh, thanks. I got <laughs> super butthurt for a quick second, but that's okay. Uh, and over all the way. I don't even know where you are anymore, whether you're in Singapore or China or Seattle. I'm back in the mother country. I'm back in New York. Nice. Good old New York. York. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Brooklyn. Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, Mocha Mike. Hey, we're, all, we're all a bunch of queens here. hey Oh. Thanks. Mocha Mike, how is it going, man? Great to see your face again. Great to see each of your faces again. Um, it's going very well. I'm glad to be back, both in the United States and here in front of you guys on Skype to join you with some conversation. I had to miss the Game of Thrones season premiere um, chats due to technical difficulties involving time zones, um, which bummed me out. So that's not I, a technical I difficulty. <laughs> that's not a technical difficulty. That's a fact. You, you should have known that. Like the technical before. difficulty was that you guys didn't want to stay up till 1 a.m. to record. That, that, is, that is correct, my friend. That is correct. But I'm glad I'm back uh, to scratch an itch in terms of chatting with people about um, at the entertainment that we like. So, yeah. Glad to be here. I mean, uh, always great to see you here. And I would say, hopefully, if we do have some time, we can have, like, a small, like, after section that we just chat about Game of Thrones. We put up our stuff up there. So if people are interested, definitely tweet us and let us know because more and more content that we can put up there for our fans would be the greatest thing that we can do. Yeah. Uh, Mocha, what you sipping on? So as for what I'm drinking tonight, I'm trying to keep it low-key, um, partially because I'm completely broken out after my recent trip, but I'm drinking a Budweiser, uh, specifically this is a big boy Bud, it's a, it's a particularly large bottle, um, that I got from my bodega for a dollar and eighty cents. Oh, nice. Is the price on the bottle? Um, no. 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 It's not a can of Arizona iced tea, right. so. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Uh, it's good watching? value, though. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, which is why I went for it, because um, I could barely afford that. <laughs> what you been watching? Yeah, so in terms of what I've been watching, I had the good fortune to be in the air for about um, for 
about 48 hours total during this trip. So I actually got a chance to watch a whole bunch of movies that I had missed out on the past year, year and a half. Um, they were exclusively animated movies. Um, so I got to see recently Finding Dory, yes. Frozen, uh, Moana, Zootopia, Lego Batman. It was a very, um, it was a very innocent fly over the Pacific Ocean for me. So, now yeah. you said within the last year, but you do realize that Frozen's like four years old, right? Oh, I thought I was trying. <laughs> that's why I said like year and a half because I was like I was trying to catch whatever whenever Frozen came out. No, I guess, yeah. that's within the last like five years. Yeah, I haven't seen Frozen either. So. Yeah, Frozen is from 2013. So. Wow. Yeah, I was like, all right, I barely lived here. I don't think I was even living in Boston when that movie came out. So I'm like, mm, let me let me check Wait, that. Wait, it came out in 2013? I was still living in Boston then. All yeah. right, I'm, this is wild. We got to move on. This is too wild for me. <laughs> but so out of those movies that you just listed, and you listed some good stuff, even Frozen, I thoroughly enjoy Frozen itself. Like, what do you think was like your biggest takeaway or one of your, like the favorite things of those movies? Because you've listed a lot of good material there. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go ahead and just say that rough top, the clearest uh, or the most clear to me as the best film of that group is Zootopia. Um, that movie completely took me by surprise as to how thoughtful um, it was, both in terms of presenting like a fun, happy story that teaches good lessons to children, but also is a kind of like scathing commentary on the state of uh, xenophobia in our world today, um, which I didn't expect in any sort of way whatsoever from that movie. So uh, I really, really, really enjoyed that. Um, and then as for you know Moana, Frozen, Finding Dory, it's great to see animated films where the heroes are empowered um, women or young women um, and empowered in different sort of ways. Um, I don't think any of them really fell into any particular types as far as heroines go. Um, and you know, I have a little niece who's a big fan of all these movies. So for me, I'm glad to see Disney putting in some solid representation across the board there. Oh yeah. I mean, even from this day for right now, the reason why I have to give a nod to Moana over Zootopia, in particular for last year, because they were like battling between the best animated, um, I just like something that can connect with you even further through. I feel like we've seen uh, we've seen Zootopia before, but this is like the best version of a storytelling. So I feel like that's why I actually won. But we just haven't seen something like Moana before. Of you know, it's a story about a princess that has nothing to do with love, sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. Like even with like Brave, like even with Frozen that you talked about, like that was heavily sort of implied at least with one of the sisters. But <clears throat> Brave, I think, was one of the only other ones I can think of off the top of my head that it was there subtly, but she wasn't like truly focused on that. She was really against this. Where this movie doesn't even need to go there. Um, doesn't even talk about like, even with her father. It's like saying that hey, we just want you being on the island to pre to protect you. But that has nothing to do with her marrying to a family or marrying somebody else. That's just talking about her duty. Um, so I was really yeah. excited about it. I was just really focused on that and that's why and the songs are just phenomenal I mean The Rock can do no wrong again he can do no wrong and the yeah. sing so I think I was and speaking about the songs too I mean a lot of them if not all of them were written by Lin-Manuel Miranda who is best known for his work on Hamilton um, and if you haven't listened to the Hamilton soundtrack I seriously should because it's really really well written intelligent song, uh, songwriting um, and that transferred over there was a lot of thought in all the songs for um, and, it, and it's very clear when it's his writing style as well. Um, and I think it made a big impact on it. 
Oh yeah. And also Jermaine from Con- from Flight of the Concords was a giant crab, and that really made me happy. Uh, I mean, that's another I, guy that can't do no wrong. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you <laughs> haven't awesome seen, if you haven't seen Moana, for, like please go see it. Arguably, my favorite song is his song. It's called Shiny. It's a very short song, but it's very um, specific of what it's trying to do. It's very creative and how they're uh, how they pull things together. I. I listen to the I listen to the soundtrack a lot. I think that the top three soundtracks I listen to, especially from last year, is Moana, Kubo, and La La Land. So that's a mm. big that's a big thing for me. Cool, cool. Well, of course, thank you, thank you so much for hanging out with us again as an official member of the Downfront Podcast crew. So I appreciate you hanging out with us. So glad to be here. Uh, and my name is Warren. I will be your host for this evening. Um, I actually have been busy also, and thank you that I had so much, th- so many things has ended today, so that I have a lot more time to watch a bunch of movies, whether it's small or large, or films, and all this stuff that we're talking about. And um, uh, there's even like tons of stuff that came out in Amazon and HBO. I mean, there's a lot of good content out there. Um, the bare things I can necessarily keep up with is all my other anime. I'm not going to bore you with that. Trust me. Uh, but I am going through and I'm doing something a little bit interesting because after our last episode of talking about Game of Thrones, I wanted to do a rewatch. And so I just started from episode one and just kind of slowly making my way through. So I'm all the way up to season two for right now. And I've at least watched, I've watched a full season in less than a week. So I think that's pretty good. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think it's funny. There's a lot of times that I'm just looking through these seasons like, wow. Everybody in this scene is dead. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. And even sort of thinking of like it was even much much earlier. You had you know King Robert, and you had Ned uh, Edard, and then you had uh, the cousin, uh, the other Lannister who shaved his head. Not Kyle Lannister, but uh, Lancel. Um, Lancel. 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 Right. Yeah. So they all three were in a scene together, like talk about all this stuff. And I just paused it and was like, well, they're all. They're all dead. And even when they're all hunting, I was like, well, even Sir Barrison is dead. I, I forgot about that. So I think it's pretty interesting. But I also like the scenes that have been played. Like, this show has set up a lot of good things very, very quickly. Um, and I completely forgot that the first episode ever was the first cold open. And it's a pun on a cold open because we see the White Walkers. Uh, so the first episode ever was arguably one of the best episodes and one of the best cold opens that you've seen. So it's just giving me a deeper appreciation. I'm really, I'm really glad to like really get my hands dirty in this and really kind of jog my memory. Because hopefully by the time that I'm finished it, it's going to be when the season finale of this season is. Uh, probably before. And then a lot of stuff is going to be kind of fresh in my brain. Because I'm also going to delve into the books pretty deeply to see what I, what I missed. So uh, yeah, that's what I've been watching. I recently... Yeah, Mocha? I recently started watching it from the beginning too with my roommate because he just started for the first time and rewatching that first episode, um, like seeing characters like um, uh, what you call it, like obviously all the the Starks together when they're young, um, but also you know King Baratheon, um, kind of like I had this like emotional nostalgic moment where I just kind of felt bad that they weren't around anymore, even if I didn't necessarily love them as they were in the moment. Yeah. Um, even for for Robert, I think a, a character in a recent episode said that Robert Baratheon wasn't a bad king, he just didn't want to be king. And like having that in mind when you're watching those early episodes with him, he's super lovable, um, even if he is an asshole at times. And so it was, it's just kind of sad rewatching those old episodes. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I will have to say this, that uh, that premiere was the only drama I've ever watched that hooked me from the start. Hmm. Like, I, I watched it, I think, before season three came out, and I just remember being like, what What am I doing? Like, why haven't I been watching this show all along? Um, and I've never, even, even like, this comes out to, uh, like, Breaking Bad, I had to force myself through. I was like, no, 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 it's, this is highly, like, acclaimed. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And then it, it was. It was amazing. But Breaking Bad is the only thing. Like, that whole execution sheet scene, I was like, they just did that on TV. Ooh, that's new. Let's do it. Yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah. I, I think mean, if I rewatched it, I would just wish for characters to show up that aren't there. Like, I just want Strong Bellwas to randomly pop out of nowhere. Ah, uh, Strong <laughs> Bellwas. <laughs> the mighty who will never be. What's the winner? 2018. <laughs> oh yeah, 2018. I hope. I agree with hope so. Uh, but it's yeah. already confirmed not 2017. That's insane. Yeah. Still six months. Nice. Well, I am pumped. I'm excited to talk about our feature. Also, I am uh, sipping on. I, I reviewed this a million times, and I definitely want to talk about it. Hashtag apothic. Hashtag. I'm sipping on a slightly nice, just apothic red. Nothing fancy. I have some fruit juice. I'm sipping on too, but uh, just apothic red. Nothing crazy. It's it's smooth. It's delicious. It's wine. So uh, I'm excited to talk about the newest movie, the newest film from Christopher Nolan, and it's called Dunkirk. It also does the music by Hans Zimmer, and this movie stars a bunch of people. You'll see Kenneth Branagh's in it. Uh, Tom Hardy's going to be in it. Cillian Murphy's going to be in it, who I think he's been in almost every Nolan film. Does anybody can confirm that? Was he in Memento? He is in Memento. Get out of here. Um, I, don't, I don't know if he's in Insomnia. Oh, I need to... I haven't watched that movie. I need to go back. I don't know if he's in... Um, what's that magic movie? Oh, what yeah. Would you check Magic Mike? Not Magic Mike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Prestige. No, that was the, the Prestige. The prestige. Yeah. 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 That would fail, but I don't think it was Sally yeah. Murphy. I don't think... I mean, unless he's like a side character or something, I don't think he's also in that movie. But he's in the majority yeah. of them, at least. I definitely know he's in the majority of them. But I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm pumped to talk about some of these wins, some of the criticisms, uh, some things that surprised you for it. Um, I'm also, like, a bit of the history, kind of the backstory, because, of course, you know me. I went into this movie not knowing anything. Guys, I didn't even know Dun Dun Dunker even happened in real life. I kind of heard of it, but wasn't even sure. Um, so I was just pumped but i was also a bit nervous at least for me to to watch a movie that has something to do so closely with real life like this is historical things that happened um but let's get into it let's talk about some of the wins here i'm going to start with brylan let's see if you really kind of get into like some of the wins and things that we're talking about um dunkirk and before we start i would say if you haven't seen the movie you probably stop the recording right now. Uh, we will be spoiling the entire movie of Dunkirk by Christopher Nolan. So I would say pause. We're going to give you about a few moments to kind of shuffle out here, buy your tickets, and then go watch the movie. And then we'll see you back here in a moment. So we'll see you in a sec. Coming back, I'm super excited to talk about some of the wins for Dunkirk by Christopher Nolan. Uh, Brylan, what are some wins and things that you really enjoyed about this movie? 
wow. So, um, first, I just want to talk about just the building of the intensity that this movie um, portrays. That from the very beginning, it starts with a quiet like scene where a, a squad's walking through the city of Dunkirk, headed towards the beach. Then as soon as you, then once you hear a gunshot go off near them, you're immediately like thrown into your body's thrown into shock watching this and it doesn't let up for a long time through this movie um the way they do sound in this movie is phenomenal so whenever it's not just the sound effects but it's also the music Hans Zimmer's score is probably one of his most understated scores that uh, he's done for a Nolan film it's not overpowering the scene but it's building that intensity slowly, step by step. So when they're showing uh, the Luftwaffe come towards the beach, you just hear this like almost like heartbeat bass going. It gets faster and faster and faster until the bombs drop. And then when you hear the sound of the bombs, those like shape those those rattle you as well. And they and Christopher Nolan's able to keep this intensity up through every single scene they jump to for probably an hour of the movie. And then you have this one moment where uh, Kenneth Branagh's character, the captain, uh, he's looking at the ocean or looking across the channel and he starts to see something. So he gets his binoculars and looks at it and he sees these boats and someone asks him, what do you see? And he says, home. Uh, It's all the civilian boats that have actually come to rescue them. That one moment has made me feel such a complex emotion that I've never felt in a movie before. Yeah. That I was happy for him. I was I was wanting to cry just because like I could feel that desperation they portrayed on the screen. But also it's like you also have a sense of dread at the same time. Like I don't hope I hope those boats don't blow up. It's like I hope I'm lucky to get on to one of those boats. And it's just like, home is just 50 miles away. And it is so much chaos to go between Dunkirk and to Dover to get to England. And that one moment, I think, sums up the power and the importance of this film, is that it showed that you can tell stories not just with a great uh, main character and a beginning, middle, substantial plot. This movie even splits up all different types of timelines and you're actually going through different periods of time during the Dunkirk event. And it uh, it just is a it just is a masterclass of telling a story and putting you in the shoes of not just one person but a whole group of people. And at the end you're actually feeling I mean I think they've definitely won by making you kind of feel for 400,000 British and French and Belgian troops that were stranded on the beach trying to get home. And that's probably the biggest win for me is that it actually encompasses, it actually goes out to make that story in every single part of that that movie, whether it's the sound, the visuals, the uh, acting, they all play their part well and all play off one another well to give you probably one of the greatest war movies ever made. Uh, One quick thing on the music. Um, I think the whole basis of the score was based on non-tonal, like, tone clusters. Like, to to drive the anticipation, basically what you do is you take a bunch of notes, 
that are very close together in pitch and then just stack them all. So you have this really like this, what it's literally called a tone cluster. So if you can imagine, they're all just very close together and you have that kind of go in and out towards each other. And I remember thinking uh, near that scene, like right before the scene where you see all the English boats and you see, you know, the binoculars, I was like, I haven't heard a major chord yet in this score. And then when you, he lifts out and he says, you know, I see home and it's all the boats. At that point, you brought into this grand major chord. And then it goes to this very functional tonal harmony that like everyone's used to. And after seeing an hour and a half of, of tension on screen and tension with the music, you go to something that, oh, my God, this makes sense to me. And you're right, Brown. Yeah. That that moment uh, was amazing for that standpoint, and Zimmer did a great job underscoring it. But it's it's all about. I mean, it's the same thing with. It's the same thing like we talked about with uh, you know um, what's his face transitioning to horror for Get Out, <laughs> where comedy and. And horror are similar genres that you have to have anticipation to get a release, whether it's scary or funny. And it's the same thing in music where you, a major chord makes literally no difference if you don't have, a, you know, a, some sort of friction before it. And so in this case, we had an hour and a half of friction to get to one major chord. And then it went back to, you know, Hans Zimmer being weird. But, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment. Yeah. I mean, I whelped up, yeah. and I, I was feeling it so heavily during that moment. And they yeah. see they kind of brown. I was like, oh, God. I was sitting next to you and I was actually holding myself back because I started to feel myself shake. And I was like, I drove my hands into the uh, seat um, armrest and I was like, I just wanted to ball out and cry yeah. at that moment, but I held myself back for some reason because I was like, I don't need more to see me cry like this. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, but, like, um, just like yeah, Frozen, you just got to let it go, man. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, it's just so powerful to see that happen. Um, and what's really cool about this movie is even though it is chaotic and everything that it is horror it is you have this army that has their back against the wall and everything seems to be failing left and right at the beginning where their destroyers are getting sunk left and right and it's um, but all through that chaos just still the cinematography is amazing as well. So Nolan's able to cap, make a dogfight feel intense and um, you make you anxious, but also you're like, wow, those are some beautiful clouds or that planes, those planes are turning in such precise ways or that flyby by the beach makes this ward zone look kind of peaceful and beautiful at a moment just to have a nice juxtaposition to the story they're wanting to tell. And I, I really like how they ended the movie as well with Churchill's speech about Dunkirk that kind of is like that rallying cry to let's not give up, let's keep on beating the Nazis, that the way they intersperse it between the troops riding on the trains going back to their homes to uh, seeing Tom Hardy's character finally land his, emergency land his plane, uh, burn his plane and just stand there waiting for the Nazis to pick him up as a POW. And it's just like they're giving a big middle finger to the Nazis that, hey, 
hey, we lost today, but by damn, we're going to we're in the win the war any chance we get. Yeah, and I thought it made for a powerful message. I I just love that shot and I love that scene. I like as he's burning it, then I really would. I'm I'm surprised that that's not in more marketing material um, because that that scene that's kind of shot back from him behind Hardy and he's watching his plane just burn. It is just a it's just a gorgeous scene that's actually happening. There's something also going on with the sky in the back. I just love that entire moment and how peaceful and the fact that uh, I like the use of. I think we talked about this and. I have to think about the movie that we talked about it recently, but we definitely talked about it on Game of Thrones of when there's not a lot of dialogue in certain moments of you're literally just showing me what's happening. There's just so much action that it doesn't need to be dialogue. Um, I didn't think there was going to be a lot of dialogue at all up until I think the first line was like maybe six, seven minutes into this movie. But yeah. the entire opening sequence was like little to no dialogue, but you knew exactly what was happening you knew what was happening as he was running to the barricade and they were all running out and you know you see a lot of these guys are, are starting to die and this guy just wants to try to use the bathroom with these papers that's flying around and it just seems like there was a lot of stuff going on but it was still very focused i just thoroughly just enjoyed that moment of they took a lot of time with not cluttering um the beauty of it with a lot of lines and just focusing on people talking so i do like that portion uh mocha what you got for me yeah, so, you know, this movie um, called Dunkirk, I think could have just as easily as go- uh, have gone by the name, um, It Gets Worse, the movie. Um, that's pretty much all that happened throughout this movie. It's just things started bad, and then they were just like, well, what's the next worst thing that could possibly happen? Um, and I don't say it's a, it's a criticism. It was an extremely intense movie um, and left me anxiety-ridden and just tense of muscle throughout the entirety of it. Um, and that was part of why, you know, they never really gave the viewer a chance to catch a breath or feel okay with things, which is, I, which is very intentional. It was supposed to, you know, mimic the sort of nonstop fear that these soldiers felt while they were trapped on this beach this entire time. Um, so I think Nolan did a really cool job of executing on that. Um, it was a surprisingly short movie. It was only an hour and 47 minutes long from start to finish. But it felt like like a much longer movie because of how intense every single scene was, um, and you know that whole feeling of just being uh, anxiety ridden throughout the entirety of a movie. I think is starting to become its own genre. I mean, we saw something similar in Gravity, starring uh, America's Sweetheart Sandra Bullock, where it was just like a movie where you just felt uncomfortable and scared the entire time until the very end. Um, and I think I'm into that idea. It's sort of masochistic, but I kind of like that as a genre. I want to see more films come out that just make me feel uncomfortable yeah. for the entirety of it. Yeah, I mean, even um, like even with, uh, Transformers you know, did that, but in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> Stop talking about Transformers. That movie was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, even the movie, you know, we talking about Get Out. Blue did mention this earlier. That was another that that movie made me so uncomfortable this entire time. I wasn't. I, it was just very uneasy feeling. Even when the points where it was funny, you mm-hmm. knew that the the things that either a the characters in the movie were laughing about still made you uncomfortable because the context of what's happening around them. Uh, so I, I do I fully understand and I fully agree with you what you're talking about there Mocha because physically my chest was hurting a- after the end of this movie I was hurting I, I was feeling it yeah. I, I knew what was happening I was like this is wearing on me but I, I, I like that I, I like that the way that you necessarily kind of phrased it because 
I wonder, like, what is this genre of movies that's coming out that says, hey, we need you to kind of hop on. Uh, the earliest one I can think of is Final Destination, the first one. And that mm. movie stressed me the hell out. But, you know, it's, it's <laughs> but even Final Destination had... Yeah, Blair Witch Project is another one like it. Oh, yeah. I feel like Final Destination even had like moments of levity or moments of calm where there was just normal dialogue as opposed to just like everything from start to finish is awful yeah. and you just have to try to like ride it through. Yeah. Um, another part of the uh, this film that I really enjoyed that I thought did a good job working in tandem with the anxiety-driven aspect was the fact that, and Brian mentioned this earlier, but the film was, uh, or the story was told to us anachronistically. Um, so scenes were shown out of order in time. And it took me a, just a little bit of uh, a little bit of time to catch up on that uh, as the scenes were switching, but I thought it was really remarkable. Um, rather than taking uh, these three point of views and showing them in the order they actually happened, um, had that been done, there's it's very likely that the pacing could have been off um, or wouldn't have felt as intense going from start to finish of what this this battle looked like, but. Nolan showed us different moments of time where things were at the at their worst or becoming uh, their worst for each of these characters, and allowed those moments to be stitched together by really awful um, connecting points. So, for instance, the scene where um, Tom Hardy's fighter jet flies over his downed buddy and he sees him wave out the window. Um, at the very end of the movie, you get to see what actually happened in that scene, and he's waving out the window because he is dr- about to drown, and things are, are looking bad for him, and it's at a totally different type of intensity yeah. um, than what you expect, and I thought that was really clever. Um, it, it allowed for there to be really high beats of anxiety throughout um, without forcing it by telling the story in the order that it actually went. Yeah. Um, so shout yeah. out, to, shout out to, to Nolan for that, because that was really, really smart and I think kind of ahead of the game for what he did. Yeah, what I really like about like how he cut that those stories together was he told you the time frame that each one actually re- represents. Like one's a week's worth, one's an hour's worth, one's a day's worth, and it I think it adds to that anxiety, that intensity you feel that you kind of don't know where you're at in the story at any given point because they'll jump to something that's in pure daylight versus at night, mm-hmm. and but gradually there's each part starts to come together and then they all just have one moment where they're all together in unison and then it goes out to the rest of the to the end of the movie and after that climax i mean it it's it's really cool to see that way of storytelling just utilized in a different way that kind of just each thing starts to compress on one another until you get the full story of everything yeah. Um, also, another really smart thing that Nolan did with those three point of views, um, it could have easily gotten stale if the if the drama was driven by the same sources for each of those point of views, but they weren't. Um, each one had a really different source for why the viewer and the characters should have been uncomfortable. Um, you know, for um, Tom Hardy, he was in a fighter jet. He was above the, the, the battle, above the fighting. He didn't have to worry about getting rained on by bombers. But he did have to worry about finding the other enemy fighter pilots and stopping them from bombing his people. Um, and his anxiety was driven, or that scene's anxiety was driven by the matter of time. He doesn't know how much, he doesn't have a working gas um, uh, excuse me, display. Fuel line. Fuel line area, yeah. So 
because he doesn't have a working one, he has to estimate. And so the entire time he's flying and trying to be a hero, you know that he has a question mark of a countdown clock going. Yeah. And that's why that's anxiety-driven. Um, for the soldiers on the ground, obviously they're being bombarded and they're trying to escape and dealing with near-drowning situations, um, which is very different from what Tom Hardy experiences just flying around in the sky all movie. But then in addition, the civilians' uh, point of view with the boat that comes to rescue them, they're in relatively calm waters the entire time. They're, uh, the anxiety and the drama of their point of view is driven by the fact that there's a soldier on their ship that they save who doesn't want to go where they're going and you don't know how that person's going to react because we're aware that he's been shell-shocked and he's not in his right mind. Yeah. Um, so there were three extremely different sources of fear from each of those point of views and I think that really that allowed the entire movie to stay fresh in a really terrible way. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was yeah. great. I just thought that, like, that's very strong visual story storytelling just to, like... And these things that you're talking about, they, they mentioned it a little bit because, you know, the father, uh, you know, from the civilian boat has seen it before. And, you know, you got uh, Tom Hardy's character is writing with chalk on this thing of trying to estimate. And every time he would write, he would look at his watch, try to calculate and estimate how much fuel that he's going to have left before he runs out. And uh, he's even building up the anxiety to the, that he knows he's going to run out of fuel. He knows that there's nothing about it, but he also knows that, hey, there's a choice I have to make, and the choice is I'm going to try to save the people as much as possible, and I'm going to run out of fuel and figure out what I need to do. And I just think it was something very powerful with the scene that you see this plane just going, and the, the rotor is not even moving, and you know that he's just literally trying to coast on like whatever is the, whatever momentum that he's already had created. Um, and I thought that was just a that was a, a very that's a very good scene because the majority of the times when we see all the planes are flying, we hear those rotors, we hear that the plane's going. But now you just see this thing soaring around and everybody's cheering and they're saying this is all great. And I just love that. I'm not entirely sure off the top of my head what the name of the uh, that uh, that term is, but it's a very different approach of people on the on the ground are cheering and really excited but at the same time what's happening what's really happening is well I'm, I'm probably gonna die because I, there's no way for me to stop sort of thing um, yeah and it's, it's, it's irony because you know you as the viewer know that um, Tom Hardy flying coming back and flying without his propeller like moving is he sacrificed himself just to save a few more people and everyone on the ground is cheering because they just saw a hero save their lives they're not cheering they're not thinking of that at all um, which kind of makes it, uh, you know, a, a sort of, what's what I'm looking for, like a, bitter, a very bittersweet moment for the viewer as well, because you have every reason to be as excited as them, but you just know that he just signed his uh, death warrant, or his at least prisoner of war moment uh, warrant. Yeah. Um, the, you know, in addition to all these things, it needs to be stated as many times as we need to, because I don't think it can be understated, but the practical effects and the visuals and camera work were just jaw-dropping at a lot of points. Um, you know, no one is no stranger to doing a really pretty sweeping wide shots, but seeing all the dogfighting, um, all of the ship work with as little CG as possible, there were, only a, there were so few moments where I even thought that a scene could be CG. Um, gave a grittiness, a real grittiness to this film, which helped because you know this is a story about something that actually happened in our lives in a different time, um, and so watching this film in pra with practical effects adds that realism and makes it feel more like you're watching a memory as opposed to just watching a stage production. Oh, that's a good, that's a great way of putting it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. 
Blue, oh, also, got? props to Harry Styles. I didn't know he was in this movie, and he looked familiar, but at no point did anything about his his acting scream, I'm Harry Styles, look at me. Um, he just did a good job being his role and not doing any more, so props to him. Brown, I said that same. More important to me, Al. Yeah, was just like, all the British people, I mean, pretty much look the same. They all just look by a care. But I was like, <laughs> should that, is that Harry Styles? I don't know. I mean, he's doing a pretty good job right now i'm not gonna worry about it and then at the end i was like motherfucker that was harry styles it was nice. <laughs> someone told me it was harry styles like three days later like i saw it and then i was then someone told I, I had no idea absolutely no idea yeah and i thought i think that's a great thing like the movie came out like three days ago but i it still took me three days even though i saw it yesterday yeah. <laughs> one other cool thing about this is <laughs> what i mean <laughs> what cool time, about time doesn't movie? work time doesn't work for me it's, it's how it is wait pick up on Bradley go ahead alright one other cool thing about uh, the intensity of this movie is that even though this is a war movie uh, not a lot of people get shot and the the toll that war takes is more of uh, fear in people's reaction to fear in different moments whereas the boats like they tell that boat to ship off after it got damaged next to the pier and it rolls back just because of the waves and then crushes people against the dock. Mm. Or when the medical boat gets hit by the U-boat torpedo and starts to sink, just people drowning in that galley and people wanting to try to swim out and survive. And people even trying to jump off of it, but then they get crushed by the boat as it goes down. Uh, it, uh, I mean, it definitely brings in a lot of more factors than just being shot by the enemy, which I really respect. Yeah. Yeah. Blue, what you got? Yeah, a couple things. Uh, first of all, I'd like to pose a question to the group. Uh, what is the main instrument of the score? Uh, a watch. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I think that uh, Moreno really brought home a point where the central theme is that they're running out of time. Uh, whether it's the pilot or the soldiers on the ground, with the you know the Germans literally closing in on them, or even the ship's captains, where they have to get there before the Germans close in on them. Time is constantly running out, and I think that. Zimmer did a masterful job of having a sl- like having the clock kind of speed up throughout the rest of the score, um, and it, it really just like he did a great job in Interstellar of having that organ being the centerpiece, and it, it seems like he's kind of set a a tight piece on how he wants a Nolan score, where he's just going to pick some arbitrary thing and then make that like the central theme. Um, and I thought that was unique, you know, taking something that's not musical and making it this musical. Um, a couple things. Uh, I think Bryland or Mike uh, mentioned this, that everything was loud. Um, like, because war is loud. We talked this, about this in Baby Driver, where, like, no one goes deaf because they shoot a gun. Well, you, you felt that. You felt that whenever a gunshot fired, you're like, oh, my God. You know, like, I literally a couple times ducked in my seat, even though I was in a movie theater. Uh, like, it, it's like, you know, it, it's, it was just loud. I was also in IMAX, and so they had, like, the little butt kickers, too, that kind of made me jump. But, you know, that's, that's how it is. Was yeah. the movie theater um, in Revere? No, it was the uh, Reading IMAX. 
Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Revered. No. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Like that one scene where they're all hiding in the boat, waiting for the tide to come in, and then the Germans start taking, uh, just start doing target practice. You know, every single one of those bullets is. It will make you poop your pants. It doesn't <laughs> yeah, matter. Absolutely. You don't get used to it, which is the amazing thing about it. I just love is that. Fact. Even when they do the first shot, you're shook. That second yeah. shot, you're shook. And then when they open up with a machine gun, you're just like, ah! <laughs> you, don't, you just don't know if someone's going to get hit or if someone's yeah. not. Like, I just love the fact that they really, really ramped up the fact that they're inside of a submarine, so everything is going to be amplified. So you're inside a submarine, and now there's a little bit of water, and there's even more waves of sound, and everything is going to be louder. Everything is amplified because you're literally in a drum, and it's also it's going to be metal. So you have metal and water, and that sound's going to be so loud, it's going to be absolutely piercing. It wasn't in the theater, but that how it's going to be is going to be absolutely frightening. And even every one of those gunshots that you were talking about, Brylin, Every one of them were freaking out because of how loud it was. Yeah. I, yeah. The, the beginning of this movie scared the shit out of me because that first gunshot, I was like, oh my gosh, I did not know what movie I was getting into at all. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it was, was continued. But also focused in a way that shook you. Mm-hmm. And I think, it, I mean, that really, I mean, this goes back to how genius the sound editing is on this. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things with this movie was that, and this was mentioned earlier as well, there was very little speech at all. Um, in fact, <laughs> like I think, eight lines of dialogue. Yeah, I think, I think Christopher Nolan's ultimate goal is to either A, create a movie that has no dialogue, or B, like help humanity evolve to a point where um, we communicate strictly through music and musical scores. One of those things, like his (laughs) ultimate goal as a director. Um, But because there's so little actual dialogue, there's so little talking, a lot of the movie is silent, which is some sounds like propellers or waves crashing in the background. So every time one of those, like a bullet goes off or a bomb goes off, it feels extremely unnatural because you don't get anything like it until it's a cacophony happening all at once Um, and it's just one of those things that just keeps you wound so tight the entire time do you think that Christopher Nolan's gonna make a silent like a true silent film before he retires because that's what we're building so silent that it's just like you, you'll you'll literally you go understand to like, what true silence is. You'll go to what, an IMAX and they'll they'll have like a player piano in front, and then like you just watch the movie to that. That seems where it's trending. I mean, yeah, I'll, he's I'll definitely trying it. to re- like remove as many words as possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was even surprised there was a, a, a bunch of dialogue. I was I was sitting there to the point where I was like, man, this is pretty cool. Like, I'm surprised he doesn't need it, but still pretty cool. It even had a character who didn't speak in this movie who was on screen more than Kenneth Branagh, more than uh, Tom Hardy. I mean, more than Cillian Murphy. This guy who literally didn't speak a word of English, at least at that point, right? Didn't speak a word, was on screen more than any of this. And that's a pretty strong testament to say that, you know, we don't need dialogue. It doesn't matter. And then, you know, some stuff, you know, what ends up happening with him, thinking that he's a German spy and a bunch of other stuff. And I thought that was a very interesting sort of plot point that was happening. And it was unfortunate that uh, he ended up drowning. But uh, I thought that was pretty cool, just because we don't know who these people are. We don't know who these characters are. We just kind of thrust into this world. And we get this main character who his entire crew that was with him just gets slaughtered and they all die. And then he's running and he finds this guy who just buried somebody else. 
and they're all they, they at least they it doesn't matter if you know how to communicate or not like we all know that hey we want to go home we, we want to try to survive as much as possible and then they end up you know saving a guy's life who's who was on like the medical boat instead of getting crushed so they save him he's a part of their crew sort of thing like he's actually started traveling with them and that that camaraderie piece of we don't like not many names were said like there's names on here but not many names were said this entire one like that doesn't that's, I don't think that's the point of the movie I think that point is the movie just to show um, these different pieces that we're talking about today yeah. I, I gotta say that was one of my wins where it kind of stayed true to um to the actual like story of Dunkirk so I'm a huge history person I, I know I know what happened like coming into this which we'll talk about in a little bit later but like I know this story left and right and the fact that they didn't have a single main character was very true because it was literally a, a, a nation's effort to get these men home um, and I really liked that there was no there was no one defining moment of valor. Like usually in these war movies, you have one moment where the hero goes over the top and either like sacrifices life or kills like 60 bad guys, depending on if you're watching like Rocky or, you know, something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, and they didn't really have that. It was, they, they towed the line between self-preservation and staying in line. Uh, obviously when you go through boot camp, part of, part of that job is to strip you of, some of your humanity it literally is it's in there and and i really think that going with the whole we have to stay in our line because we're soldiers and the basic human instinct of survival they really did a great job of showing that um which not many war movies usually it's again it's usually like the the good guy is good and you know uh does some crazy act to overcome that and there was never one crazy moment yeah. I would say, I would argue that um, there was one particular moment of valor and heroism, and that was when Tom Hardy's character returns after losing all fuel to blow up the last ship and then sail off into ultimately being captured by the enemy. Um, but what's interesting of that, and it plays right into what you're, you, you were saying about how it was the movie was about a nation's effort, not any one hero, is that yourself and Tom, like the viewer and Tom Hardy are the only people who, who know that he sacrificed himself. Um, everyone else who sees it happen just cheers and then runs off to safety and he has no way of getting the message back to anyone to let him know, hey, I'm going down, I'm still on the coast of France, I'm going to be a prisoner. Um, so his was a full self-sacrifice in that no one gets to know, gets to know what happens to him, um, which I think even though he did have a, a valorous moment, um, the fact that it went unknown plays into exactly what you were saying, where the movie's about more than just any one particular hero. And there was no epilogue, you know, to make that happen. Like, no, like, oh, this guy was rescued from what... He literally just didn't matter. He was a number in that war. And that... Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, and if he was based on a real character, like... He'd be a name in the newspaper that says missing in action. Yeah. Hey, also, also, how many fighters did he take down in that movie? Did he take down four or five? I thought it was like five. five or yeah. uh, I don't think he was like, quite an ace. I thought someone But he was, there. but he, at the very least he was on his way and there weren't, um, you know, in terms of like, you know, the, the history of uh, the second world war, there are a number of aces on either side, but 
if you look at their total like numbers of dogfights won, they're not terribly high. So the fact that he had like five in just that two-hour span um, probably means that he was someone of note, or at least could have been someone of note had he had a chance to go on to. So it's not even like those four schmucks who get shot because they're you know running down an alleyway in the beginning. Like he was someone who either was great or had the potential to be great, but ultimately will always be un- unknown. I mean, I even like the fact that you talk about, you know, heroic moments, and I think a lot of the easiest ones that people are going to gravitate to is going to be the Tom Hardy moment because of that's something that's a little bit more um, evident. I, I like the subtle ones that's happening. I mean, these things were happening all over the movie, but I think the biggest one that's continually happening was, you know, the father, Mr. Dawson, and his son and his son's friend. They were just... Go- they- I mean, he knows more about war, and we start seeing more that he knows more about planes. He can actually, he, he knows what kind of engine these planes have in them and what they're made out of, so you know that he has some background to it, but he's a civilian. And he's going to go to the people, he's going to rescue somebody that's going to, he knows that he's shell shocked, he knows that there's a danger to that, but he's going to have that risk. He's going to take that risk and have that anxiety for it. He well, knows that this fair. person. Was that? We never, we never, we never actually learn if he fought in World War One. I. I know, but he has that he knowledge. Could, he, he, he could easily be a World War One vet. Could be. Yeah. You you that, I like the fact that, that it's not Peter's like obvious. older brother. It was an RFA RAF pilot in the first three weeks of the war, and he died. He died. Yeah. So he has some familiarity with it. But I like the fact that it it keeps it so we can either a fill in that information or b I don't think we need to have that information to know that even if he knows the information or not, he's still going. He sees that this person is shell shocked, and he calls it out. So I think Blue, you're definitely onto something. Of he has uh, some sort of knowledge of previous war. Uh, but then he also sees his plane goes down and he's going to be the first person to go over there and says, I know, I can't, I, I know he may be dead. I know, but oh, I'm going to try. Like, I have to try. And that literally is what they're doing this entire time of like this guy in a civilian boat, you know, uh, I, like even the, the little boy that's innocent becomes blinded and gets gets hit George. his head. George, yeah, hits his head, becomes in blinded, and then ends up dying from it. And then you also talk about the sacrifice that um, you know the son says, "Oh no, he's be fine. He, he'll be okay." But George is dead, and he's trying to do that to save this other soldier who's completely out of his mind because of what happened from the war. And he still continues to go and save all those people, and it's—I mean, it's things like that that's ha- like obvious. It's it's set up, and we can see that he's going over. He's taking these. He's saving these people. He's dodging these planes. He's calling things out. Those are the, Warren, kind of the hero. That should have been the tagline for the movie. It's just we have to try because that was literally that's how the event was. It was well, let's send people over because we can't send the navy. Like we we have to try and get these people off, yeah. you know, and and obviously they did, and it was a big huge moment. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the one last thing I'd like to say about positives for this, um, or I wish I interjected a little earlier that the whole score was very loud, and the whole like everything was loud about this movie, and I thought that they had a great dichotomy um, when the plane was kind of silently gliding through the air they really cut the score down at that point and so you heard a little bit of background people noise but you just heard basically nothing but the air and it was like it was again that silent triumph like technically the nazis won 
yeah. they captured Dunkirk. You know, it they, was a disaster. They complete. Oh yeah, it was, they completely captured France. France was out of World War Two until you know a couple of years later. But it was that silent triumph that they saved those, those four, almost 400,000 men. Those 400,000 men returned to England. They ate toast. They drank beer. They got ready again. And then a couple of years later, they fought probably the greatest evil on their own turf that's ever been encountered in human history. Yeah. And, and again, it's... Not, this was human. This was never a perfect good guys. Return of the Jedi. We beat the Empire. Literally, none of them are left. It was. Uh, this happened. It, it, it's. Uh, I think one of you guys said it earlier that it was a snapshot. It was. It was not the beginning of the war. It wasn't the middle of the war. It wasn't the end of the war. It was just a, a week in a couple soldiers' lives. And how they responded to the like the environment around them. Yeah. So I, I thought that that scene in particular did a great job of underscoring the entire theme of the movie that silent victories reign supreme, and that's how wars are won. It's not one grand thing of like I don't know Iron Man beating the villain. It's small sacrifices made throughout. Yeah, one interesting thing about the uh, man that's handing out blankets to him when they get back to England is that uh, I think it's Tommy that realizes that he's blind, but his friend says, like, that guy couldn't even look us in the eye when he handed out the blankets, even though he told us that is enough. Um, one thing that was used a lot in World War One was mustard gas, and one of the side effects of mustard gas is blindness. So... It was neat to see kind of like a callback to, hey, this might be someone that was a soldier and had it rough as well as much as y'all did, too. But he still is proud that y'all made it home and got out of that and are surviving just like he's surviving. Yeah, definitely deep. It's cool. It's a cool point. Yeah. So, as always, we talk about a lot of the things that we love about the movie, uh, but sometimes things just doesn't quite work. Uh, things that didn't necessarily kind of hit on a couple different points and we just really kind of go into our criticisms of Dunkirk and uh, I want to start with the kind of blew it here uh, but let's talk about some of these criticisms that are just things that just didn't work about the movie yeah so I thought I mean we talked about uh, you know realism towards war and I thought one big thing was like there was a lack of blood and violence um, I could have used more I could have used a hard R instead of like a roughly PG-13 level. Um, just, I will never forget seeing Saving Private Ryan for the first time and watching that D-Day scene. And that scene, like, it sticks with you. Seeing that guy holding his guts, you know, while he's on the beach dying, uh, that really drives home that, like, yeah, this was, like, this isn't good for our species, the fact that we do this every, you know, whatever years. Um and I, I just don't think that they had it because it, it sets a message, you know, like this movie was, I think the biggest criticism that it was like, it kind of just was there. It didn't have a message. It didn't have a strong character. It didn't have a strong plot. Like it just happened and you experienced it and then you moved on where again, saving private Ryan, it's 15, 20 years later. And I still remember that guy dying on the beach and still remember and like, think I can't believe we do this to each other. Um, so 
I think Nolan could have got a little bit weirdly political, not not even political, but just like weirdly more involved on it. Um, let's see. I thought uh, that the, well, uh, Mike, I just wanted to mention that. Um, I don't know. I go back and forth whether or not that's a criticism for me because this movie, I definitely think, it captures the intensity of war and the chaos behind war with what it does. Uh, and I want I want to see like in an imaginary in an alternate dimension if there was a hard R version of this, would I still feel that same intensity or would it be too much for me? I'm not quite sure, but I think it's a good point to bring up that. I mean, we got to remember that wars has brutality behind it; that it's not clean cut. Who was the who was the central villains in this movie? Um, uh, time and fear, <laughs> pretty much. Okay, that's fair. What okay. the Nazis? What if, and but did they ever say Nazis in this? No, when they I said the enemy. Yeah, they said the enemy, and I, that was that was again uh, like a criticism. Like everyone, this is a, a historical event. Call them the Germans, like it. It from effective they, movie telling. They called the you they called to, them the Germans. You wanted them to call the Nazis or the Germans. I don't, did they call them the Germans? Yeah. I don't remember that. Even when they were in the submarine in particular, like, I mean, sorry, even, even when they were in the ship. Oh yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, they yeah, did say like the Germans. The Nazis, like a yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right, I was gonna say because I feel like they didn't they didn't humanize the enemy as well as I would have liked to them. They they were always this phantom. That maybe you saw a couple airplanes, but not that you never really saw them. Mm-hmm. Um, all the soldiers, right? And if you if you humanize the enemy, then it makes it more it makes it more relatable. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think that they they purposely distance themselves from that. But I I don't know. I didn't find it very effective. Um, anyways, uh, we didn't see a swastika at all or anything. I didn't I didn't see that. No. You if if anything you saw well, the Luftwaffe uh, kept the World War One German flag as their emblem, and so that was the only thing that you saw. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I totally forgot the name there. Um, I thought the 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 nonlinear story editing was definitely unique and a standout thing, but I think it was handled very weirdly. Where it took me a little while to realize what was happening. It, it took until seeing another character in a situation that we hadn't seen before. Um, before I was like, "Oh, oh, yeah, that's what's going on here." And I don't know. Is it definitely? It wasn't like Memento, where there was a clear black and white versus color uh, difference between them. Um, and I think it took me a little bit out of the movie, where I had to every single scene think, "Well, where am I in the plot?" And then at the end, they did it. You're right. They did a great job of combining them all, and you saw like, oh, this is from everyone's perspective. But throughout the entire middle, it was just it was kind of confusing on like where where you actually were. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was part of the point of the editing was to, I mean, to just go along with the sound and the visuals is throw you off and make you intense and confused and feel that chaos that everybody else is feeling. But it, it ultimately didn't have an effect on the movie because in the end they showed, they, well, at the end of the movie they showed the end of it. And where something like Memento, which I think is a valid comparison considering it's Christopher Nolan, you just kind of ended the movie. Whereas at the end of Dunkirk you got to the end of the timeline and all three of them. I think if they ended the movie at a weird place, it might have been more effective that it was nonlinear. But, but the fact is that we saw the end of all of their storylines. It kind of didn't make a difference that it was a nonlinear edit. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it, it didn't matter. You could have you could presented it as it happened, and it still would have gotten you to the same place in the end. Yeah, I agree. Well, it would have the same impact though. Well, that's the thing. I would I would reiterate my, my point from my um, earlier statement about the linear nonlinear approach, in that it didn't necessarily make the storytelling better, but it made the it allowed for the anxiety and the intensity of each moment to be at a consistent level of, of uh, a consistently high level, no matter which scenes you switched through. Um, and I think that was uh, I think that was a really intentional thing on no one's. That's, maybe I didn't feel it like you did then, and maybe I, I I felt more on the confused side at first rather than like a intense side. Um, let's see. The other big thing was um, with plot. So I think we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, you know, you got to pick what you make your movie about, and I thought it was really hard to gravitate towards anything. Like there wasn't a central plot, there wasn't a central character, there wasn't like it wasn't really essential anything. It just kind of existed. And I could definitely see is for me, it was hard to really emphasize or uh, not emphasize, um, empathize with anyone in the situation because they kind of all just existed and then their story stopped. Um, I would have liked to have seen a little, like at least a little character development. Cause again, going into it, I know what happens. Like the plot is irrelevant to me. It's like Titanic. No one watched Titanic cause they were wondering what would happen with the boat. You know, they watched it because they wanted to see the, the, the character development between the two, you know, Rose and Jack. So the same thing, I, I wish I could have seen a little bit of development in any one of these characters. They all kind of just did their jobs and then acted as humans and then left. No, there was a bit of there was a bit of development with um, Kenneth Branagh's character. I think I think one of the, one of the only yeah. ones that could have a little uh, enough. I mean, definitely you know the father and um, I think George's story one, but, is. I mean, I mean it's bittersweet and sad, but it's a fantastic tiny tale that's told within this big picture of um, this rescue mission that's happening. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I just I didn't feel that because he. Again, you didn't know who he was really before the war, and then so him just kind of coming in and bumping his head, it's like, well, I don't know. I, I, again, it, it, it's, it could have used a little bit of exposition on the characters themselves to give them more depth. For sure. Um, I mean, he's a... I mean, I, you, get, I, you get as much as you need to know. He's an eager young kid that just wants to help out and do good. He makes a off-the-cuff choice of I mean, jumping on the boat and saying, hey, I'm going with y'all. And, yeah, you know, Mr. Dawson, he doesn't argue with it and everything. It's like, okay, this is the choice he made. And I think it's telling something that when we talk about a movie that's lacking the brutality of having vi- like visual violence and gore, that the most blood we see is from this slight bump to his head that you think nothing of it but causes him to die is where we see the most blood. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Well, my, my one last criticism, and I don't know, so I saw it in like the Super IMAX at one of those Jordan Furniture things, so I don't know if it happened for all y'all, but uh, 
Did you notice the switching of aspect ratios? Yeah, so I saw it, but I also um, can speak directly to it because I, um, you know, happen to have read an article about the production of this film, um, and they had mentioned in the film that the movie was shot with 70 millimeter and IMAX cameras, um, but that for the IMAX cameras themselves are just physically too large to be practical for shooting in very tight spaces. Um, so oftentimes the um, the letterbox would come on when they would switch films to switch to more standard cameras for scenes like when they were inside the galley of the escape boat or in any particular tight scene, um, which, from what I read, the director tried to use intentionally on scenes that were more claustrophobic anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so suddenly black bars come on the top and bottom of the screen um, in a scene where people are drowning and you know underwater um, to sort of add to that for the viewer. Um, but ultimately, it was strictly a matter of the practicality of fitting an IMAX camera in a tight recording space. Hmm. Interesting, for, because to me, it screamed technical error, not artistic choice. <laughs> it was like very distracting, because especially the way they cut this movie, uh, I, I liked how they cut it. I liked how it was fast cut between different characters and different scenes. But you'd go from one scene that was at full IMAX resolution to you know whatever the lower aspect ratio was, back to IMAX, back to lower, back to lower, back to lower, IMAX. It, it just like, it jumped around. It seemed, it seemed very, it seemed like an amateur-like thing, rather than you know, a, a conscientious choice, which, which, so for, for me, a lot of these things, you have a problem, you have to solve it. Uh, don't, I feel like that's almost a cop out saying like, oh yeah, it's to like be claustrophobic. It's like, well, no, let, let whatever is happening on the screen dictate that. Not because you couldn't figure out a way to blend the two cameras together. Mm. Fair. Cool. Yeah, but and I'm that's it for my criticisms. <laughs> yeah, also like 70 millimeter or IMAX shot films, they always have those jumps that the whole entire movie can't be caught on IMAX because of that reason, so that's going to happen. I didn't really ever notice the bar change. I mean, I definitely noticed it during Transformers. Sorry to bring it up again. But, I mean, I think that's telling of a movie that if there were those changes, I never noticed them. I mean, it kept my focus where it needed to be. I mean, I even like... And if they did do the difference between the IMAX and the other smaller cameras, I like that approach of showing something that's in the claustrophobic because when they were in that submarine and it was sinking and everybody was trying to fight for their life, there was just a a sudden... uh, this is a dread, like a fear of like, oh, I have no idea what I would do in that situation kind of scenario. And, it, and, and you can't see anything. It's obviously all dark and it's just water that's kind of suffocating you around you that's probably freezing. Um, I, I definitely elicited that. Uh, uh, I got that uh, a point. I got that point across at least. That was kind of sucks. Uh, Brylin, any criticism yes. from you? Um, one, I mean, just like the lack of a gore and everything for a war film um not really criticism i just i would like to see a cut of it that has that just to see what it would add to the film um and also my other thing is i wonder if if i'm at home watching this on my ipad again will i get the same powerful intensity and emotion anxiety and chaos just because of how the sound's done yeah that i think it would require a certain sound system to replicate what you'd feel in an imax movie and nolan's notorious for like he makes his movies to be seen in a movie theater that if you want the experience he's giving you 
you have to go to an IMAX or 70 millimeter screen to capture that moment. And so it's going to be interesting to see how it translates at home. That will it keep that impact of being that great film. Uh, because I truly cannot find a criticism on how this movie is made because I think it's amazing. Cool. Mocha? Yeah, so as much as I enjoy the intensity of this film, um, you know, I said in the beginning that I like being anxious all the time as a genre, as a potential genre for movies. Um, as much as I enjoyed it, I do have to say that you know, it didn't take that long for me. To, it didn't take that far into the movie for me to be ready for it to be over. Uh, the intensity and the anxiety was legitimately exhausting, and it's kind of funny because when I went to see the movie, I checked on the movie playtime because I wanted to make sure that I got out in time to make it back here for the podcast. And I was shocked to find that it was an hour and forty-seven minutes total. And I like double looked at it. I looked on Wikipedia and IMDb because I wanted to make sure. Um, I was like, oh well, how is he going to tell an effective story? in an hour and 47 minutes that seems bizarre and it actually felt way longer than that in the moment uh, to the point where I was actually like man when is this movie going to be over like when are they just going to breathe so I can breathe again um, so I'm a bit torn there because I did enjoy that from a masochistic standpoint but also it really was just it took a lot of energy out of me to watch this film um, another criticism I have is that uh, there was surprisingly little death in a movie where so many people died. Yeah. Um, let me let me clarify that statement. Um, the, the film itself was extremely focused on the select few characters through whom you got to see the three sections of this movie. Um, the people on the one rescue boats, um, the British and the French soldier, you know, trying to find escape routes, and Tom Hardy and friends. Lancey and Aaron. Um, <laughs> um, and what you get in that and because because it's so focused on those few characters despite the fact that everyone around them is dying in large numbers no one that you actually follow for more than a few seconds on screen really dies um i think the one exception would be george the little kid um i'm gonna go ahead and say that for me the frenchman doesn't count um the reason being is because so here's why. So the Frenchman was there the entire movie, and he was silent. And it turns out the big twist near the end is that he's being silent because he is the he is a French soldier, and he's not supposed to be there, but he's just trying to find a way to survive. Um, so his silence then was a tool to increase anxiety because you don't really know what's going on with this character, and you have reason to be suspicious of him when they accuse him of being a German spy. Once they reveal that he's French, they killed him off immediately. Yeah. The very next scene was him dry, drowning, and he was the only one to drown, which tells me that that character only existed to provide another form of anxiety until he can no longer fill that role, and they just got rid of him. So he doesn't even count to me as a significant character because of because of, of that. Um, that's why I don't count him towards that. So outside of that, the really only like major death was George. Um, and I don't know, that kind of... It kind of made the intensity a bit less in hindsight because everyone ultimately got out fine, except for Tom Hardy, who got captured. Um, but he didn't even get so much as a splinter. He just got taken away. Um, uh, aside from that as well, uh, another thing that the movie did really well was utilize silence as a tool. Um, there was very little dialogue, and when there was dialogue, that it was extremely concise. Like, we have to talk about this one thing, and then we're going to go back to being quiet and running away for half an hour. Um, when there was, like, actual conversations, it was typically around the officers, and it always felt expositional. 
Um, it felt like because they were the only ones who were allowed to say more than one sentence at a time, they had to tell us everything that was going around and around them in history, and you know, like sort of tell us why like the boats weren't coming and why you know the troops were so scared and. It just the conversation from characters like Colonel Commander Bolton just didn't really feel natural to me, um, and maybe that was strictly because there was so little dialogue everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took me out of the moment every time the officers had conversations. Um, so I take that as a criticism. Um, even his last line, you know, when um, oh, what is that Bolton says? Oh, when when he decides to stay back, and he says, "I'm staying here for the French." And it just sounded like it just sounded so like so heavy-handed and didn't really land for me. So uh, so yeah, the lack of interesting or compelling dialogue was a criticism for me as well. Yeah. Would you say I mean that since they were all soldiers and they're basically trying to focus on like our mission is to survive? How the hell we're going to do this? Would you? Did you want to see like more humanity in their dialogue and them not just talking about the orders that Churchill's passed down? Or no, no. So I guess so. From the soldier perspective, I thought that the lack of dialogue or lack, of, you know, of advanced dialogue was completely on point and really effective. Um, I don't know. I guess for the for the officers talking about the plans that the big dogs have is what they bring to the table that makes them unique as characters in the first place but it just felt so out of place and kind of forced whenever I had to listen to them speak um, I don't know how I wanted that solved um, or how I could see that solved but it's just something that kind of struck me while I was watching the film um, also one other little thing that I took as a criticism that I didn't re- that kind of bugged me was for the most part despite seeing the various parts of the story um, out of order we got to see everyone's full story from start to finish everyone except for Cillian Murphy so Cillian Murphy we initially see him as a survivor on a sitting on a, on a flipped over capsized boat and that boat looks like it's rather large, like it has a propeller and it's made of metal um, and then he's rescued from there and later on we find out that before that moment he left on a on a paddle boat with a bunch of other crew members um, out into the ocean at night. So ideally we're supposed to think that at some point in between him sailing off into the sea or rowing off into the sea and when he was saved that something bad happened and everyone else died but it seemed like a completely different ship almost as if Cillian Murphy had a similar experience where that, that escape plan failed, he went back, tried another escape plan, and that failed, and then he was rescued. Um, but that weird gap where he left on a, on a wood rowboat and then was found way out in the ocean on a metal boat with a large propeller was never explained and just seemed oh, just seemed out of place for me considering that everyone else got their full story told. Yeah, I mean, I was going yeah, to definitely mention that. That was, a yeah. fir- that, that was one of the biggest criticisms uh, of the movie. I mean, I didn't have too many of them. Like, there's a couple of nitpicky things, but I think we mentioned the majority of them. Uh, that one was pretty glaring um, because of, I guess, his, his, the title of his character, he doesn't even have a name. Uh, the, his name is literally Shivering Soldier. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that ended up being a pretty drastic... I mean, his actions cause a lot of things that t- to necessarily kind of happen or even kind of cause like other anxiety for other characters and stuff like that. So he really was like 
I think we really needed to know, at least see or something, some more backstory of what's going on with um, that character because mm-hmm. it, it, we just didn't get enough, and it just it was it was too much of a disconnect, and I wasn't sure that uh, we had to kind of like try to piece it ourselves. Uh, and I, I don't want to leave that into my criticism in a moment, but is that something that we have to piece together ourselves, or can you give us a little help, Nolan? Yeah. Um. Two other things that I think is criticisms, which are really kind of just um, like more interesting notes I made um, of the movie more than like a scathing criticism. But one was the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, this movie might as well have just been called It Gets Worse um, because no matter what the scene was, they just found some other way to make it absolutely horrible. And it was to the point where at the end of the movie, I just couldn't possibly imagine how they could keep going. Um, and then they lit the ocean on fire. And like, that scene was legitimately horrific. Like being tired and exhausted from swimming and then oil gets ignited and you're underwater holding your breath because if you come up, you're gonna get burned to death. Like that's a legitimately terrifying situation. Um, but it was just it was just kind of funny to me because I imagined you know the writer's rooms being like, all right, well, they're about to get saved. What's like the last thing we could do? And they're like, oh, why don't they just, like, burn in the ocean? Yeah. <laughs> These two dichotomy, like, complete, dichot- complete dichotomies and just put it on there. So they have one last moment of just really terrible awfulness before the credits roll. And even on top of that, you got somebody who's about to drown because, you know, he has to move the boat out the way. And he's he has this, I think that was actually Tommy, he has underwater and he can't pull him up because of the force of the boats going the opposite direction. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like, if this guy drowns, while he's trying to save him that's oh that's tough yeah. that's real tough to show man yeah and i get it war is hell um but it was just the escalation of that movie it was just kind of like comical and probably because i was so exhausted by it i couldn't just help but laugh um at just how terrible things were even to the last minute um and finally speaking of comedic things it was really hard for me to look at tom hardy with a bomber jacket and a mask over his face talking <laughs> over the loudspeaker and not just think that it was being flying that plane the entire movie no. <laughs> it was, it was absolutely it's, it's one of the- how do you not how do you know that isn't his backstory <laughs> i mean there was there was a moment at the end when he set the plane on fire that i just wanted to say the fire rises <laughs> Oh man, yeah, it was. I got a kick out of that. It changed my perspective on every single scene he was in, especially when he talked over that microphone. But uh, but yeah, does, being in World War Two. So, uh, so does Tom Hardy officially have a thing? You know, how, like Tom Cruise runs in all of his movies, and uh, Quentin Tarantino shows feet. Like, does Tom Hardy always have to have a face mask to make his voice sound like this? No, it's only Did it happen in Mad Max? Yeah, he, he had the, because the, when he strapped the, he the front of the car, he had, like, the whole thing. And it's happened in three movies. Okay, like, just three movies. All right, and How many movies has he been in? I'm raising like this question right now. a whole right career. What, are you movies. It didn't happen in Inception. Right, I'm telling finding, you, we're finding his mask. Inception. We're gonna have a marathon night. Inception <laughs> right now. Oh, I would Tom love. Hardy's I would masks. love a Tom Hardy marathon. Let's be real. Tom Hardy was the inspiration for Mask Off by Future. Guys, we're gonna have a Tom Hardy party. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay, okay, it, podcast, didn't, it didn't Tom happen. Hardy Legend. Party. It didn't happen in. Uh, I think there's a drive. It, uh, driver or cell phone. It didn't happen in. Um, Inception. In, yeah. It, it only happened in three movies, guys. Like, <laughs> um, well, yeah. all right. The first, first article, the first article when I looked this up, 
is Christopher Nolan, please stop hiding Tom Hardy's big, beautiful lips from us. Yes. <laughs> I think I'm on to something right here. <laughs> oh, uh, man. But, I mean, I'll close off and I'll end our uh, criticism section with a couple of them. I'm going to feed off of what uh, Mike said. Is it was really tough to understand some of the dialogue, a lot of the dialogue when the two pilots were in there because there was three pilots, by the way. So... I have no idea what happened to this third pilot. Um, and then it just them talking and Tom Hardy already has like a thicker accent that he's putting on. So it's it's just tough to understand him. And then kind of adding on to that piece of it, it's really difficult to like use my brain. It's really difficult to try to piece a couple things together. Like I don't know like, if you're going to tell a story that's you know uh, in a, like all over the place and it's non-linear that's fine but I think for a movie like this you have to be very specific and you have to give us a, a little more information because I, I don't think we can handle too much at this point because it's such an anxiety huge written movie and all these things are happening and we're trying to pay attention and this is huge sound quality this sound element now is an additional character it's an additional device of the movie so now we're focused on the sound and we're focused on what's happening so quickly it's very difficult to do all that and says oh hey by the way you're gonna kind of sort of have to figure out that this is kind of a weird riddle or it's a kind of like you can try to figure out the, the storyline of it and you're asking a, a bit a bit too much, I think, from the audience at some point, because now I'm trying to piece together what the heck Tom, Sardi, Tom Hardy said. Well, okay, so are you, is this how much time has passed? Uh, you got uh, George is here. Why is George, did he actually have family in the actual movie itself? The father and son, like, do we, did, did we meet the son? Are we sure we, met, we never met the son? I'm assuming that we didn't meet the son at all if he died three weeks into it, but I, I guess not. Um, there's just a lot of questions in the movie like even for that like in the beginning like who was the French guy burying who were all the people with Tommy like where the, why were they just waltzing around like walking in a dangerous zone completely leisurely that's that's kind of weird like that happened in the beginning and it's like well you knew that it's a battlefield that's that's very strange that you knew it's a battlefield yet you guys are walk, walking down the street Literally, to explain that, I mean, a quick explanation is the city they were supposed to go to was Calais in France, which is actually a big seaport. Mm-hmm. Dunkirk is like a nobody town. There were actually no Germans there as well. Mm-hmm. So when the Blitzkrieg happened, they actually cut off Calais and north of Dunkirk. And so it cut off their, it made it where Dunkirk made the best sense to actually rescue everybody even though it wasn't the most ideal place because nobody was there it was a small podunk town that barely anybody lives in and that's why it looks kind of casual but you gotta keep in mind like they're running across france retreating marching hundreds of miles running hundreds of miles by the time you get to that beach point you're probably gonna be like i'm still pushing i'm still pushing like how they're looking for water and food at the beginning Hmm. that hey I'm using all my energy but this is all I can do right now I'll say um, to your point also Warren the biggest unanswered question for me in this film is whether or not the son of the man who was driving the boat uh, whether or not that little kid was a German spy 
because if anyone would like a little Hitler youth, it was that like high cheekbone, blonde hair, blue eyed, like twelve year old but looks like a man. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. How was that the biggest question? Standards on the wrong side. How was that the biggest question in the movie? The biggest question in the movie for me is when the hell did Tommy use the bathroom? Oh, that was another While thing. He's swimming. Yeah. This, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The second, the second time he tried to crap and he had to stop it, I was praying that there'd be a scene where he actively shit his pants. <laughs> and I'm sure it happened at some point, but I needed to know. I need to know when he shit his pants. I need to know. Hanging under the docks, he just like dropped trowel and plopped it out. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? That's what Enrique Iglesias wrote that song. Or was that Mark Anthony? I need to know. Mark Anthony. me, baby soldier. Yes, I need you to. No, <laughs> and with that, this is going to end our review of Dunkirk by Christopher Nolan. So thanks for hanging out with us so much. Uh, guys, I'm so glad to hang out with you guys for this awesome movie. So thank you so much for that. Let's get into a bit of the grades here. Uh, Brylin. Um, I think this technically, if you looked at all the sums, sums, the sums of its parts and everything, uh, from the sound, the music, the visuals. Uh, this is very close to being a perfect film. I can't really find any critical issue with it. And I think it's Christopher Nolan's best film ever. So I'm going to give it an A+. Ooh, best film ever. All right, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that there. I'm not going to fight you on that. Uh, Mocha, what you got? Yeah, so this movie was absolutely beautiful, had some stunning effects, and a really fresh approach to its storytelling, but ultimately was completely exhausting um, and didn't really tell like didn't really tell me enough of a full story. Um, and as a result, I want to give it a B plus. Cool. Uh, blow it. I forgot your name for a second. That's yeah. fine. Uh, don't wear it out. Um, I thought. So I felt like this really was a very, very well-produced early 2000s History Channel documentary. And I say that with, like, good things in heart because that was when the History Channel actually talked about history. Um, But I also couldn't escape the fact that it was a dramatized version of a real-life event. And uh, I don't know, I, I... it just didn't completely work. I thought I gave it a B minus. I would definitely recommend seeing it as an event. Like it's it's a good movie. It's an interesting movie. I don't think it's a great movie. Hmm. No. I mean, I would say that I was captivated. I just like the fact that you know, although I feel like you definitely have to have a good sound system. Like you're probably gonna benefit from watching this movie in IMAX more so than a standard. Um, so that may be kind of hampering it a little bit, uh, but I just enjoyed just the act of storytelling and just the use of silence in this movie itself, and then the fact that no, there was no one character um, or two characters that was glorified, and they really tried to stretch it out to have this really nice big sort of genre, like ensemble piece of uh, you know everybody's contributing because it's a war, and a lot of the people that are contributing is people either a is trying to leave or people's trying to go and save the people that's trying to leave. And you have the people that's trying to sacrifice as much as possible to try to get everybody out as much as possible. Um, so I, my, yeah, my grade is going to be an A minus. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, there was definitely a couple things that could have happened, but I think these things are, are going to happen because you're trying to retell something that happened in history, and there's no way to do that. Even if you have like articles and 
interviews and things like that. So I think it has like probably the best attempt. I think one of the best attempts. I definitely have to look back, but definitely one of the best attempts of like kind of a, a actual historical sort of battle review of um, a tragic moment that ended up being a, a good moment for people. So it's good. Yep. And with that, we will say thank you for listening to us chat about Dunkirk by Christopher Nolan. Rylan, where can I find more of your work? Uh, you can find me uh, talking about how Euron Greyjoy is the bastard stepchild of Captain Barbosa from Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> on Twitter at Brylan, B-R-I-L-U-N-D. Oh, I also boy. post many reviews on my Instagram. I am Brylan, so find me there. Uh, I mean, Brylan, I want to put you in the lightning round. What's uh, Captain Barbosa's daughter name? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you would know. It's okay. Welcome. No. Sure. So you can find me um, shouting into the abyss futilely on Twitter um, under the username at MochaMikeLI, as the Lord intended. Yes. Um, I wish it to be just at MochaMike, but uh, as I recently discovered, the older man who holds that username was actually already an old man during Dunkirk, um, and now is so crusty and ancient that he can't even properly post on his Twitter. So not only does he hold the title of oldest man alive, but he also holds my username like a filthy squatter. Um, so at Mocha Mike Li for Twitter. Also, please follow me on Instagram at Mocha Mike. I just got back from a, an overseas trip and I'm in the process of posting a series of cool animal photos that I took while I was visiting the Singapore Zoo. Um, so check it out. Give a like, give a comment, maybe even a follow. Uh, tell me what you think. Cool. I'm going to hopefully, I'm gonna actually going to see if I can raise a uh, GoFundMe for me to take over at Mocha Mike and Twitter. So, oh my God. That would be better. <laughs> at least they know you're you were born within my century. <laughs> cool. As always, I, mean, I appreciate you see, uh, seeing your beautiful face. So thank you. Uh, Blew it, the Shredder. Where, where can you find more of your work and where you play? Oh, yeah. First of all, you can find more of my work at jessyranzgas at gmail.com. Uh, weirdly enough, it ties into the theme with Tom Hardy's character running out of gas. It, that's a weird one, I thought. I was. But I, Jesse Rand's gas. <laughs> At gmail.com. That's a little... See, I've been sending it to the wrong place. I've yeah. been sending it to Jesse's Saki Shorts at gmail.com. <laughs> it was a close second. I, I nearly took down the uh, Jesse Rand's holding farts in. Uh, oh, excuse me. Holding poop in uh, email address based on the character. No. But I didn't think that was... No. Good. Jesse Rand dropped bombs at hotmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but potentially... Oh. That could potentially be viewed as a positive, so I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, but you can find most of my non-serious work at uh, My News Music uh, or My News Band on most major platforms. Um, we're fun. <laughs> this is not a video, so they can't see that. By the way, so it's like you know. no. But I'm Italian. I have to talk with my hands, regardless of how many video cameras are on. It's just. It's all this. Fair enough. 
And we are the Down and Friend Podcast, in which you can find a lot of our work literally always on the internet. If you like what we do, if you like hearing our voices, if you like kind of sending us some more movies so we can get more and more reviews out, I would say definitely kind of help us out as much as possible as well for our Patreon. So patreon.com slash down and front. We can go sign up for a dollar, two dollars, three, like whatever you like, even be um, hosting the show. We actually did get a, our first ever, so uh, actually our second request from Megan. So thank you so much again uh, that she actually wants us to review and read a book on uh, our next review I gotta look nope, at the movie. I'm done I'm <laughs> out. I quit <laughs> this is the worst thing ever <laughs> I, I had a feeling that somebody was gonna say that so read a book <laughs> read a what so um, book. I'm probably gonna actually uh, join her on that one at some point so I'm pretty uh, pumped about I'm pumped about that um, What's the book in the film? Uh, I gotta look it up. She's texted to me, and it's all, it's, it's gone in the ether. But apparently, <laughs> I, 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 I learned how to read. Huh? I learned how to read. You did? I did. Are you sure? Yes. yes. Audiobooks doesn't count. I most no. definitely did. <laughs> Audiobooks taught me. <laughs> <laughs> I only read Braille, so. Oh, there, there you go. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Patreon definitely help us out. We're definitely gonna be working on that's uh, may even be a, um, an episode with just me and her, um, just on kind of Skype, just kind of hanging out because she's really, really into this book. I gotta read now before summer's over. Um, but for a bunch of other artwork, we have Facebook, we have email, we have YouTube, we have Twitter. Um, we're even on Stitcher, so if you don't have like an iOS device, uh, you have anything, definitely find us on any of your favorite platforms. Facebook is facebook.com slash D-I-F podcast. That's down in front podcast. That's what it stands for. Our email is downinfrontpodcast at gmail.com. We have a YouTube that we go ahead and post in the show links in which we do like video teasers and live tweetings and a bunch of like really fun stuff that we're trying to kind of get to you as well. So you'll see our, our, pod, our, our YouTube and then you'll see our Twitter is at DIFP. That stands for at underscore down in front podcast uh, where we're going to be tweeting up a bunch of stuff as much as possible and there's a lot of good material that's still going to be coming out in the next few weeks whether it's stuff we talk about Game of Thrones or the stuff that we talk about I think we mentioned the Emmys last time and just a whole bunch of good stuff and a lot of different retweets because I definitely try to follow as many people as possible without getting spoiled because I know that there's a Thor Ragnarok that's going around. I know that there's Stranger Things going around. I know that there's so much stuff. I almost flipped out and ran out of the theater when I heard the Star Trek, uh, Star War, excuse me, uh, trailer that I had played before it. So I'm like, I know it's there, but you know, we, we can do what we can do. So with that, I would say thank you so much. Good night, sweet dreams, and I love you, Mom. <laughs>